0: This move, from flatness to emptiness to fullness hidden in plain sight, is incredibly common. I have not really escaped it. Yet the initial premise is only half true. The Midwest isn't all flat. Think of the driftless area where the glaciers never passed through with their vast flattening bulk. And it's false in a deeper sense when it's meant, as it often is, to imply boring. What flatness actually means is excess, overwhelm. By not hiding any of itself, a flat place exhausts your seeing. It gifts us more information than we can take in. Dazed, bedazzled, we give up on it, and call our failure boredom.
1: Welcome to The Big Readcast. I'm Joel. I'm Bill. Uh, if this is your first time with us, this is a podcast where Bill and I uh, usually we read very large books, 500 pages or more, and then we talk about it. A whole new idea for podcasting, talking with friends to other people. Um, this is one of our kind of special off-the-reservation podcasts podcast where we've actually done a small book we call it the small read special um and i'm very excited about this one uh it came out this year which we don't usually do like recently released books in fact have we ever done a book that came out the year we've done the podcast
0: no we've done some from the 21st century and that's as close as it gets <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: it's true we've done some from the last few decades but um, yeah this the, is the our Jem- first we did like... the
0: Jemison maybe a year after that came out that's true but i, think, yeah, that I don't think our, it was the same year though, though.
1: No, I don't think it was. Um, but yeah, so the the, the little uh, the, the small read we're doing this time is um, Phil Chrisman's Midwest Futures, um, which we, we, I think we both really liked. And the format for this podcast is usually us just kind of shooting the breeze <laughs> about whatever came to mind <laughs> while we read the book. Um, so yeah, I think for this one, more than our other podcasts, I want to give maybe a little, a little bit of the reasoning of why we chose it. Because we're often choosing, you know, these either these very, very popular books, or. um or books that have, I don't know, crossed our mind that we've mentioned in the podcast before. Um, But this one especially came to our attention because Phil Chrisman is an essayist essayist and lecturer who we both like a lot. He's written a couple of blockbuster essays for Hedgehog Review specifically, one of which on Being Midwestern, this book, Midwest Futures, grew out of. Um, He is one of, I think, the more kind of important thinkers about both uh, the left and politics, and maybe even how faith or morality intersects politics for me in the last few years. Um, and so he's not necessarily a huge name. And this is a smaller press, which I, I really, got, I was talking about what should talk about, how much I love the book design. But um, but he's an important writer in at least my life the last few years. And I, I think, I don't know if I introduced him to you, Bill, but I, you've come to, I think, like him a lot as well, it seems like.
0: I can't recall if literally... I, you certainly functionally introduced me to him whether or not you literally said hey you should read this it was right, at least right. because i was following the people on twitter that i was following because i had seen you retweet them and thought they were interesting you right. know what i mean like so it was yeah, sort yeah, of yeah. organically through that you that sounds
1: right yeah
0: yeah the first essay um, of his i read that i really liked i think the first essay of his i read full stop but certainly the one i think of first was an essay he wrote about like masculinity like what is it to be uh Uh, the lived experience of being a man and trying to be a decent man in 21st century America. And that sounds really silly and reductive, but I think it's actually a really excellent essay. Um, And I I think it's actually kind of how I feel about a a lot of the work, both his work and some of the other work of people, I think sort of in his, I I at least have categorized in a similar world, like uh, like B.D. and some of those folks. Right. They write these really excellent essays that if you try to describe them to someone else, you end up saying, well, it's an essay about how (laughs) bodies are weird. And when you're sick, you really think about how bodies are weird. Right. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No, I
1: I do think I I, I think it's one of the reasons I definitely like um, and I'm going to have a hard time. Like, you know, I follow him on Twitter and I think of him as Phil in my head. So it's not meant to be (laughs) disparaging. If I our call buddy him. Phil, who yeah, know, we know very we, yeah. much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> but it's you know unlike other people who we've you know we've read on this podcast, like I, I I I've had I've had some Twitter interactions with um with Phil Chrisman, right? So it you know it's it feels weird to call him Chrisman as though he is like a reference that I am you know making into an academic paper or something. But um one of the things I, I definitely think um, the two essays we just we just mentioned on you know being a man and on being Western he He does have an have a have an amazing gift for just kind of crystallizing what should be very elusive and abstract ideas, which is sort of what every critic does. But I think his special ability so far for me, and that's what this is, this book is about largely, is taking what are almost such normal experiences of life that it feels like you can't say anything more about them, and he kind of puts them in a new in a new uh, context. I, and I think that's true of B.D. McClay as well, right? She's writing about being sick. or or whatever and and i think she somehow gets at the mystery of being sick in a way that you can't always get to um so i and i think he he does that really well uh is anything else you want to add about him that we think would be helpful for people to know or
0: um, i guess i would just also i I think one reason i like his his work and his like newsletter he puts out uh almost every week is uh he's also a a uh, someone who's very concerned with both being very active on the political left and being uh, very committed to being a Christian, which I at least, right, you know, it's like, oh, hey, it is in fact possible to do those
1: things. No, and so he and I feel like he's, um, you know, y- years wise or not, I, I mean, he, I feel like he is a little ahead of where I am on the trajectory of my own developing, you know, yeah, thoughts about what it means to hold on to these kind of like bizarrely mysterious and even sometimes like. Ar- archaic principles of, of Christianity, right? Like, which he references obliquely at the end of the book. He talks about his faith practice, or whatever. And um, he, ha- he, I think he ha- like, and that's also true of B.D. McClay I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a coincidence that some of the writers who are kind of, I think. Picking out what it means to be, you know, what it means to combine the urgency of politics with the mystery of being human. A lot of them are faith-based, and I'm thinking mostly of, of course, the two, the, the two people we just mentioned. But I'm also thinking of, you know, one of my favorite writers, um, George Saunders. Of course, is like famously Buddhist, right? And I do think there's something to be said for people who are willing to kind of forefront in their own thinking, if not always in like the writing, what it means to be a spiritual person who's sort of intersected and limited by all these frustrating, you know, temporal forces. Um, Because I think that is actually the, the basic tension of being alive, the mystery of being alive. Which is really, like, that's the longest introduction we've given anyone, I think, <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> but, Probably, um,
0: but uh, we like Phil Crispin. That's the takeaway. Yeah, he's on awesome. his book. <laughs> yeah, so we
1: read his book. So I did, so before we get into, like, so, you know, usually at this point I, I, I make you, Bill, do a, you know, <laughs> an unfair tap dance where you have to summarize usually these impossibly long books. And when they're not these impossibly long books, they're books like this, which are short, but also sort of they pack a lot of intellectual punch, so it's hard to summarize them without reducing them. And so before we get to that, I kept thinking and reading this book, um, which is, again, based on an essay called, I think it's called, like, On Being Midwestern or something. I believe Um, that's right. And so um, I thought it would be apropos of how the book came to be. To kind of relate my own little moment, where um, the no- the notion of being Midwestern or having Midwestern attributes came to the fore in my life, which is really weird because like, so you and I are both from Colorado, and we're from like just you know we're just from Nowheresville, Denver suburb, satellites stuff, right? Like we're not from the east of Colorado, we're not from the mountains, we're just sort of from the Denver sprawl, right? Right. Um, You know, different parts of it, but just the sprawl has consumed both of us. Um, And so there was a weird thing where, like, I went to school in Oxford for a year, the same year you were there, Bill, when we sometimes hung out and had drinks and not as much as we should have. But I spent, like, a year in Oxford, and weirdly, all my friends there were, like, American, which was kind of a bummer, but they were all East Coast, like, Irish or Italian Catholic Americans who were rich and so it was this very confusing like cultural specificity that they brought to the table and I was sort of the odd man out like I had this you know kind of fundamentalist Christian upbringing (laughs) so and I was like I think in their mind I was this like very like you know clean-cut farm boy from Colorado who like rode horses and read my Bible in the morning you know every morning but this weird thing developed where sometimes there would be like um you know, a distinction between how I approached alcohol or how I thought of basically old fashioned values. And whereas it would have been just as easy to say, like, yeah, I'm a recovering and or developing evangelical Christian. You know, what came out was that they kind of made jokes about it. And I kind of also accepted it that like, yeah, it's just my Midwest values. And I kind of said, like, yeah, Colorado's pretty Midwestern as far as I grew up. And we didn't really ever examine that until one night when my buddy Cornelius <laughs> was kind to put it out. He's like, "I don't think of Colorado as being Midwest; it's Western." And I was like, "Yeah, I, I guess that's true. It just feels like saying I'm Midwest has been a helpful shortcut to describe the ways in which I'm like wholesome to you guys." But we couldn't really get past that. Like, as soon as we, as soon as like the word was so useful when I was distinguishing my behavior from theirs to them, especially like it was helpful to them who grew up, of course, uh, you know, abutting the Midwest in a way that I didn't really even abut the Midwest. But as soon as we pressed on why it was useful, it sort of, you know, disintegrated in our hands. And I think that's what the book is about is sort of like how the Midwest has become a catchall for these various ways of thinking about America or morality and how, when you press on it, it really maybe is something a lot different than we think it is like anything is, but also maybe it's different in a way that could be helpful
0: for the future. Um,
1: Does that, does that feel accurate? (laughs) I guess.
0: Yeah. I think that's about what the book is about. Um, Um, It's, yeah, it's a short book. It's only 135 pages long, and it's also one of those books where the book doesn't start until page 10 because they count the prefatory. like I'm not, I'm not even talking about a right. preface. I'm talking about just like the title page and the copyright right. page. And I don't know why, but that really annoys me. Like, this book, I don't I, like this I, like I want to know how many pages I have to read. I'm not reading the copyright page, man. Yeah. Like, I don't... Anyway. No, I agree. It's actually really well. Like, I'm not really trying to talk crap about the publishing. It's, really, <laughs> it's actually a really pretty book. Um, but... <laughs> The, the structure of the book is interesting. Um, in fact, I'm just going to read how, because he, he, he actually, he just, he tells you exactly what he's doing before he does anything else. He says, a note on the text. As the Midwest was surveyed into six by six square mile grids, this book consists of six rows containing six prose plats, each approximately a thousand words long. So the book is sort of a collection of 36 short essays, or a collection of six essays, each divided into six parts, or however you want to think about it. It's kind of a funny book because I was when I was thinking about it later, I actually read it for the first time, right when it came out maybe a month and a half ago, and then reread it today, uh, preparing for the podcast. And so think, like, there's a whole section on this and the whole section's about two paragraphs long, right He packs a lot of little ideas uh, or big ideas rather into little uh, little sections of the book such that you can, it kind of feels almost disorienting at times until I think you take a step back and look at what he's what he's doing with the overall structure. I totally
1: agree. yeah.
0: So, uh, and he's divided into six what he calls rows, and it's actually a cool little, there's a little abstract representation of, like, Midwestern farmland on the front divided into uh, a six-by-six grid. Each of them is a little sort of abstract image that looks a little bit like what you would expect to see on farmland from an airplane, and then each one of the plats starts with one of those, so you can actually see where you are in the book if you go back and check it, which is, I, I don't know, that was a cool...
1: No, really I, I honestly, I, I mean, I didn't really know anything about, um, like it's Belt Publishing, I think. Um, and uh, I didn't know anything about them, but they, based on this book, they they do really high quality, like, work. But yeah, anyway. absolutely.
0: <laughs> but anyway, so the the six rows, each of them has kind of an overarching theme, and the, and the plats work within them. So I'm just going to briefly talk about each of the rows. Uh, the first one, of course, is kind of an overture for the book. It touches on most of the themes we're going to have throughout it. It focuses partly on the simultaneous, like, vagueness and centrality of the Midwest. Uh, he's got a whole bit about—anytime anytime anyone's writing about the Midwest, they have to start by justifying why they're writing about the Midwest. You know, like, right. oh, well, it's, it's an interesting place, honest. Uh, even though it's central to American consciousness, it's often described as America's heartland or the great body of the Republic. He quotes people like Lincoln saying stuff like that. You know, it's always— considered to be, to some extent, true America, even as nobody really ever wants to talk about it. Of course, they do talk about it. Um, you know, there's probably more words written about the Midwest than anything else, maybe. But everyone right. always starts off in the sort of self justifying or feel like they need to justify, like, oh, it's okay. The Midwest is really important. Cleveland really has some great museums. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but one, one of his running metaphors is derived from the initial survey of the Midwest. Uh, somebody talks about how that writes a letter about how the Midwest is a fund for the rest of the country. Like, it's a great fund that we're going to be able to, uh, you know, generate wealth from. And he comes back to this idea of a fund. Uh, the second row is a lot about the history of running out the Native Americans who lived there to create the fund. He has a line about how a place can have history, a fund can't, right? A fund just has to be pure capital, and so you can't have people living there at the time, right? And so a right. lot of it is about, there were a lot of people living there who had, you know very you know complicated interesting civilizations and in history and we, we ran them out but rather than just being like oh, and that was bad he actually talks about the, the people who were there and connects it to a couple other things for instance he also talks about the various utopias that grew up in the Midwest a um, bunch of stuff with this guy Rap who founded a a country uh, a, a little town called Harmony which actually ran perfectly it's not one of those failed utopias you think of until eventually he decided they should move to Pennsylvania instead <laughs> apparently because he had a dream or something no one's quite right. clear yeah um <laughs> So he talks about some of those utopias, which actually more or less worked. These sort of often Christian sort of quasi-socialist, you know, sometimes celibate cities that more or less worked. Uh, Brooklyn, Illinois, which is actually the first all-black town that was, you know, a a bunch of African-American people founded a town out there. And he spends some time with a couple of Native American, uh, particularly Native American movement, uh, uh, Tenskwatawa, who is Tecumseh's brother who created Prophetstown, which was at the time one of the biggest cities in the Midwest and was a, a very explicitly attempt to create a pan-Native American nation um, and had some success. Like there's some reason to think it wasn't, it might have been able to happen. It just, it didn't partly because of uh, some military defeats and other various reasons. And so you can, it's, it's kind of a historical over, overarching thing, but it also talks about how there were alternative futures, which is one of the big things he's talking about. There were other possible ways the Midwest could have turned out. Um, and it did, the fact that it did in fact turn out the way it did is not inevitable. There were alternative futures, right? Um, then he talks in the third row about the Midwest as a place where big changes happened, not only to the land of the Midwest, but that also ended up being huge changes to the way the country worked. A little bit earlier, he talks about how arguably the reason we have a standing army in the United States was because of the Midwest. That's actually in the second row. Um, when he talks about how you have major It's cru- The Midwest is a crucible for various national changes. You have railroads there. That's where you get Fordism, which then gives us the way automobiles work now. You know, you have important labor relations uh, disputes that happen there, uh, like when the National Labor Relations uh, Act is passed in the New Deal and gets tested. It gets tested in Detroit all the time. Um... And then also it talks about how that's when we start to think about the Midwest in particular as being not only a national template for the average American, but to some extent kind of a world template. This is what we think the average person should look like, right? Right. So then in the fourth row, he deals with what does that mean to have the people and the place be normal and egalitarian? What does that do both to the place and to the people who live there? It gives them a sort of curious neuroticism, he says, where everyone feels out of place and bored he talks about his own life about how he was bored growing up in alma michigan which is a small town and rather than saying well that means i don't like this town he interpreted that as i don't like life basically right because yeah, this, anyone, is, this is normal life so clearly i don't like normal life you know? right um and he talks about how there's sort of this notion of it being uh, normal and egalitarian place is kind of complicated because of course it's only egalitarian for some people right and he not for everybody and of course no place is normal right that's not a thing you can't have a normal place he talks about the duality of it and uh, my favorite point he makes at the end is that of course one reason we think it's normal is because it's a place where a lot of people could live relatively relatively easy lives because of the regions like immense natural resource wealth for you know you can grow a lot of great food there relatively easily right. and so on and so forth well that's not normal that's not what a normal place looks like that's actually a very you know it's a very lucky place you know it's a place that's got a lot of advantages that other places don't have Um, Then he talks about, in the next row, the Midwest as a crumbling place, right? Uh, The Midwest is often now talked about in terms of vanishing industry and so on. He talks about how this is, in in large part, he says, due to economic choices made by um, the federal United States government, but a lot of which he says derived actually out of a Midwest movement, the Chicago School of Economics, which is a... um, very important economic school based out of the University of Chicago. Um, and which so, again, we're
1: probably not going to get super
0: into, right? I, I can talk about a little bit more maybe I'd than some folks because I did some law and yeah. economics classes, but I'm not going to do too much. Um, okay, great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, actually, I do want to get into it. I just, I also, uh, yeah, I just, you know, i yeah, make really a joke about how boring it is. Okay.
0: <laughs> yeah, but anyway, so it, this this has major changes to the financialization of the economy, which has a hard time for a region which has been an agrarian and industrial uh, center of the country, right? Once we right. quit making things in the United States and really change how we do agriculture, this gives a hard time to the Midwest. It also talks, though, he connects this to how we sort of avoid some of the strangenesses of the real Peoria, for instance, which he says has like a mosque and a halal restaurant and all this other stuff to this idea of right. And that allows us to not deal with the real problems facing the place. Like, oh, well, it's this magical place that no longer works, and what a shame, but it's dying. Like, well, no, it's a real place with real people, and it's weirder than this, and you have to deal with it. He also talks about doomsday preppers in a way which I think fits entirely correctly, but doesn't fit neatly into, a, I guess, the outline, but is correct. It is right to talk about doomsday preppers there that all have bunkers <laughs> in the Midwest. And then he, he ties it all up by saying, look, so in addition to you know, this is an interesting place. We're having to deal with climate change right now, and the Midwest is going to be both very heavily affected by climate change, and also might be a way for us to deal with some climate change issues, because in addition to being center of a lot of industries that are going to have to change, the Midwest actually might get some benefits from climate change in a literal sense, right? Like, a lot of the climate of the Midwest might actually be better after climate change. That's not, you know, who are they going to sell the corn to, is a thing he says. (laughs) It doesn't mean it's necessarily going to at net gain be better, but there's a lot of opportunities to do good things in the Midwest as we deal with climate change. He calls it a moral frontier. And he talks a bit about how, but that's still going to be very hard. Um, I'd say that's my best attempt to summarize the book. What do you think, Joel?
1: No, I, I think it's good because I, I think I think you can hear in the summary like how it, it, is, it is shot through with this kind of concern about um, – the Midwest, and and you, you have this in your summary in our notes, the Midwest and popular consciousness versus Midwest's reality, and he kind of toggles back and forth between, like, what does it mean to kind of, like, live as someone who thinks about the Midwest sort of uncritically, and what does it mean to then try and, like, re, not, not, not even, like, reshape our thinking about the Midwest, but, like, how does our missteps about what we've already assumed inform what we could do next? Right, like it is—it is always a deconstruction of you know popular consciousness to some extent. But it is—it is, it isn't just like here's the reality and your popular consciousness is wrong. He really is toggling back and forth between like how does a place become such a big symbol and then also like what do we do with a symbol right like what how do we use a symbol to kind of you know like i don't know further like you said this this moral project that we're going to face um that's not, i'm not saying that as well as i want to but i i do think that um he has a lot of very specific issues that let the book be elastic right like so he you know he has enough room in this very small book to talk about what you mentioned with like you know sort of this jeffersonian and abe lincoln history we also get of course um history of utopias and progressive Corn Belt folk. But then there's a whole section in the fourth row about like, you know, David Lynch and Twin Peaks and sort of these cultural representations um, that are both dealt with, you know, I think in really smart, critical ways, but also they they also don't necessarily always connect back like in a one-to-one way to whatever the thesis is right like he does give himself enough space to kind of explore an idea even when it might not have a very clean return to the main thrust of the book um which is not actually a criticism I, i think it's one of the strengths of the book and actually some of my favorite parts are i think when he he lets an idea kind of spin out into its final thought even if it doesn't have an exact bearing on midwest futures um but yeah anything else you want to add to that whole <laughs> I guess the thing
0: I'd say is just that the book is called what it is, is kind of a triple entendre because it's Midwest futures, both in the sense of possible futures from here, right? What what are we going right. to do with the Midwest? Also in the sense of alternative futures, like alternative histories we could have had. We could have right. maybe had a Midwest which was st- structured by whatever the political interactions were between the United States and... and organized like recognized native american nation starting in about ohio like that was an alternate future that we didn't have but we could have right and also about futures as a uh like a uh, finance term right he talks a lot about how futures trading starts in a lot of ways in the united states i guess in chicago with like corn trading and wheat training right we're like well i can't sell my I want to sell grain, but if I stock it all up right now because the river froze too early, I won't be able to. So instead, I'm going to right. sell you a piece of paper that says later on you can get this much grain. And the way right. that works out into this massive financial market that I don't remotely understand that has really very little to do with grain anymore <laughs> is, is what we call futures trading, right? And it's, it's related to how you do commodities, which is a big deal not only for the development of the Midwest, but also in the current economic system. You can do futures trading on all kinds of wild stuff. Um, so this is... His central metaphor of the Midwest as a fund is also tied up in this notion of Midwest futures, as the way he deals with both the very real economic meanings of the terms as well as these sort of broader cultural uh, terms. It's a really, it's a really cool book. It's structured really well. <laughs>
1: I mean, the other thing that should be obvious is that um, this is from the, from your summary and from how we're talking and how probably like we're going to how I at least am going to probably try and ape the intelligence of this book is that this is a really intelligent book. And I, I think he has hit one of those middle grounds that's hard to do. Um, or, or hard to strike, which is that he is both someone like highly educated and who's highly thoughtful, but his writing for me is super lucid and not just in a, like, not just in like an, oh, it's not academic. Even when he sometimes gets more technical, he has the ability to kind of string you along without totally losing, you know, without totally, yeah, losing the, the thought to the language, you know? um and i and i think that's that's been a big thing for me as well because i i do like i'm someone who went to grad school stupidly and um i think at times there is a way in which like the complexity overwhelms the clarity and that that's that's the great you know battle i think within academia is how do we not cheapen you know the thought while also not destroying the language, and so he's a good example of someone, I think, who is writing about what are essentially, or at least typically, semi-academic ideas, but he's doing it in a way that's, if not popular, I think, you know, generalist, without, I think, also watering it down to what generalist sometimes means. Um, The best comparison is one he made himself, actually, is in one of his newsletters, he kind of reintroduced himself to some new subscribers, and he kind of described himself as partially a a Mark Fisher-esque writer. And I, you and I, I think, are new to Mark Fisher, but we both read him recently or in the last year or so. And I think that's yeah. an accurate comparison, don't you? He has a Mark Fisher vibe to me, at least.
0: I do. So I've only read a couple of Mark Fisher essays and capitalist realism, which we talked about a bit on our last podcast. right? Uh, but I think there's definitely some truth to that. I had more sentences I tripped over with Fisher where I was like, I don't know what any of this means. It wasn't yeah. every, anything like every page, but I had a few like that where he would reference a lot of um, you know, philosophers that i had heard the names of but had not read and I, I've not seen Chrisman do that as much, although he will sometimes make a lot of references to literary authors that I've heard of but haven't read. He has a whole paragraph. But think about how so-and-so writes about the Midwest and so-and-so. And I'm like, yeah, I don't know who any of those people You're
1: are. You're like, next, next paragraph. Yeah, no, that's but true. It, 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 yeah.
0: It, it doesn't feel um, gatekeeping, At least I didn't feel that way. Of course, I am also not... Yeah, there's lots of authors I haven't heard of. I'm not offended by this, right? The way I guess somebody might be put off by that. It's true, Uh.
1: (laughs) but I do. I mean, but I think it's part of the tone of the book, right? So, like you and I, one of the first things we like we joked about, which you know, is that he says at one point, "As one of our great poets has said," and the poet he's talking about is Drill, right? Yeah, that's the Twitter user. Yeah, I mean, what? (laughs) Like, who, who gets away with that? And I feel like, yeah, more and more people are getting away with that. Like, it's becoming more of the reality that internet is just norm,
0: right? I haven't read some of the other sort of things that I might come to mind on that, but I I do think one reason this book is interesting is I was interested in the tone of the book, and I think we've talked about sort of two, like in our pre-discussion, sort of two different sort of metaphors. One is, you know, again, when you and I encountered Phil Christman, at least I did, uh, we encountered him through essays we read on the internet, right? And right. And Hedgehog Review, I think, does have a paper copy, but I don't, yeah, they do, I but... don't get it. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I, I've, I've subscribed to them in the past, but not the paper copy. I, re- I read them on the same. internet. They're a website, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, same way the Washington Post is a website now, right? Like, I don't... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, similarly, there's a certain sort of bloggy style that I think Christman is at least tapping into here, a way of moving between both serious sort of academic concepts and you know pop culture jokes and personal essay moments right like this is not a memoir by any means but you get no. you know some pages about his life growing up where he did usually as an illustration of a broader point not usually right you know that's not really the focus that he's focusing on uh, but but you know, he talks a bit about this this scene that happened i'm gonna say scenes is the real thing that happened but uh, you know in a moment <laughs> when his mother was undergoing some pretty aggressive surgery, and he went back and was with his whole family, he says, for the first time in a long time, and there's a lot of political disputes between them. His family are mostly, maybe entirely, you know, sort of Trump voters, and he is not, you know, he's, he's very much on the left. And he, he talks about that, but again, it's usually in service of a broader point. It's not really exactly an end in itself, although I think he does, you know, it, maybe that scene in particular is a little bit of both. But that's a very bloggy thing to do, though, is what I'm trying to say, is to be able to just move between all these very different modes of of, uh, of discourse very quickly, right? You know, no, I, I, it's I think true. of that and I think of like a Grantland essay or I think of even just something on Blogspot, maybe more than anything else. And so I think this um, is, a, you know, I'm not saying it is a blog post, it's not by any means, but I think it is informed by some of these internet styles in a way that, I, of course, I like. I mean, I, a lot of the stuff I read is in that style, but I think that makes it interesting and, and a little different than maybe a, an analogous book would have been 20 or 30 years ago. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I read the analogous book 30 years ago, so maybe I'm <laughs> right. wrong, but I don't think right. so.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, well, and there's a way in which, like, this stuff has existed for longer than it's given credit for, but I, I, I was reminded of a few writers who, you know, like I already said, Mark Fisher, who, of course, blogged, right? Like, Mark Fisher was, yeah. a, you know, he was an internet voice, and then uh, the other writer who I sometimes think of, and, you know, these are all you know, white dudes (laughs) writing about culture. So maybe it's not a surprise in some ways, but like Brian Phillips also comes to mind. Like they're very different, but Brian Phillips also has that elasticity. And I I think what's interesting about Crispin though, and most writers who are are of this new generation of essayists of, you know, in in which I would, you know, consider like Gia Tolentino. She seems to be the, um, you know, the, you know, kind of the, the face of it. I'm not sure I'm missing her name right, but there's a few others who are out there who are doing kind of these, you know, um, uh, I just lost the name of someone I read all the time. Leslie Jameson, right? Like, these authors who are writing for the internet, but they're writing intelligently about academic issues. Um, and I guess that's always existed in some ways, but it does feel like um, whereas the internet or saying a book was like, you know, came from the internet, it used to be a way in which it was saying like the marginal was becoming mainstream. But I actually think like these writers who are now all in their 30s and 40s who grew up on the internet, just like literally everyone at this point, basically, um, there's a way in which that's becoming the mainstream. You know what I mean? Like, There's a way in which um, Phil Chrisman is so relevant to the moment, for me at least, because he is describing a mainstream way of living, which is that at least part of your life is influenced by, you know, kind of the never-ending knowledge of the internet, which I think for his book means that, like, he's always considering the ways in which, you as said, you said, you know, here I am as an individual going through my mother's, you know surgery or whatever it was, and um and yet also here are these bigger forces that are kind of underneath or exacerbated or revealed by this personal moment and I honestly do think there's a way in which the internet has democratized like some of those critical studies you know um ideas right that like you know we're all culturally determined, we're always dealing with something. You know that's that's you know kind of forcing our hand or forcing our behavior, or whatever, right? A lot of that stuff has been, I think, disseminated through the internet. But I just I think I, I found it interesting because, as bizarre as it was to see drill quoted, it actually also, it felt totally, good. It felt like an accurate thing to do in a book, <laughs> that was about you know, I don't know about being a I don't know a person in the twenty first century, right? Like it just feels like the internet has become the center stage. But there's a way in which it sometimes it's talked about like. Oh, this book. This book takes from the internet, you know, which is like, well, I mean, yeah.
0: No, I think I, I think I hear what you're saying. Um, just as a quick note, the other writer I sometimes think of when I think of a particular internet style is also a Grant Landalum, and that's Shea Serrano. Now, he's obviously doing a very different kind of project than these other guys <laughs> yeah, are, but true. I actually think he uses similar tools to tell his jokes. Right? He does the same thing where he'll move into a, you know, an analysis of a movie, and then jump back with a story about his life growing up, which is often usually. Uh, A different tone, but very effective and also funny, but then he'll talk about his current situation with his kids or whatever. He can do that same kind of bouncing around thing to mostly tell jokes about movies, to be clear. But I think it's a similar style and a way that that same style can be used to do very different um, means, I guess is what I'm saying.
1: Well, and it's funny because I feel like sometimes people don't get credit. Like, so yeah, he's definitely operating within a certain comic style, but like... He operates successfully, right? Because I feel like I, in some ways I'm like, oh, he's using drill quotes and he's making good jokes that are internet-based. But actually, like, it is hard to be funny. And even if you know the kind of humor, you know, and you kind of know, like, the ways you can set up a joke, when he quotes um, Ford's manifesto, right, or one of yeah. his manifestos, or yeah. his from, his, from, his auto, from his biography, and, and then he says, um, and then after, after the quote he says, to which you can only respond, <laughs> Dad calm down <laughs> yeah <laughs> which is perfect because I, I i think what i like about the if we're gonna call it like kind of this internet style because um, i think it did used to exist and what it used to exist as was you know people would basically acknowledge um initial and emotional reactions to things right like not everyone is this big brain <laughs> stomping through these idea fields you know like totally impervious to like being amused or being annoyed or like that being the first reaction, right? There's a way in which like we've all been trained by college or by something in our lives, who knows, to like put aside things to be critical. And there's a way in which the best writing acknowledges sort of these little human funny responses before becoming critical, which I I mean, I found as a teacher as well, like I used to always tell my students if I wanted to break something down, I was like, well, what's your book club reaction? Like what's, you know, what's your, like what's your annoyed or angry reaction and then we could always move from that to a deeper discussion, but we couldn't always start at a deeper discussion first. Um, and I think the best writing, honestly, just it, it, it has moments of that, right, where it brings in those other reactions. Um, but also I did laugh out loud at Dad, calm down. Like, that's actually, like, yeah, that's hysterical, and it's hard to be funny. <laughs> okay, so, <laughs> so to get us past the Twitter conversation, I'm just curious because this is a book that's, all, that's premised on, like, you know, the midwest as a somewhat coherent idea or at least you know people having a coherent idea to themselves they think so i'm just curious of like if you thought his summaries generally of the midwest were both accurate but also maybe helpful for thinking about you know, regions generally, but also about, about, like about the Midwest. Like we all have opinions about it. So I didn't, and you've lived there for like 10 years. So I didn't know if you thought his summaries of either his own or other opinions kind of landed true or maybe which ones did land true for you.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny. I have, I guess, lived in the Midwest for about 10 years of my life, three years in Kansas city, and then just about seven in Minnesota. But I'm such a, you know, I live in my head and in a, I'm a hermit a lot of the time so I don't really ever feel like I have any great insights as to the regions or places in which I live. Right. Um, I, lived, I lived in Savannah for four years in the South and I, I think I probably have more meaningful things to say about the South than I do about the region I've lived a third of my life um, but... It, it, <laughs> That's just about me, though. In terms that, of that's um, also
1: about the South. Oh, I I think I think the South. That's makes an impression. <laughs>
0: yeah, the, the South will say, "Here's what we have to tell you about the South," and they all right. they disagree about what that means. But at least you, you're someone's saying an opinion. Whereas, and, and this is actually goes into one of the things he says is when you ask somebody from the Midwest to describe the Midwest, they tend to downplay it or say, "Well, it's you know, it's like everywhere else, isn't it?" Um, and it isn't. You know, like everywhere else. Uh, that's not true. And you'll get some people to be more precise. Like I live in Minnesota, which I think Minnesota has kind of a Minnesotan identity, which is not right. separate from the Midwest, but is, I think, a little different than just the Midwest in general. I don't know if Ohioans have the same thing. I don't know. I've not heard as many jokes about, like, oh, I'm from Ohio, so that means I do X, Y, and Z. Right. Other than the stuff connected to sports teams. Obviously, every region you're like, Tell me what's strange about your region, like oh, will we go to local sports, sports team a lot? are like, okay, well, that's not really unique, is it? Like it's sports, <laughs> it's great. Like I'm not, but it, yeah, everyone does that. That's, maybe not the Dakotas because there aren't any. Like, <laughs> right? That's not true. The college sports there are huge. Um, but anyway, um, so I think maybe Minnesota, which is where I spent most of my midwestern life, because when I lived in Kansas City, I was in college, which is also a sort of a different thing. But I think in a lot of ways, his talks about he talks about how they were moving to Michigan, and his wife, I guess, is from Texas. I think um, certainly not the Midwest. I think it's Texas. yeah, Texas. And uh, she was like, "Well, tell me about this region we're moving they are moving back to to Michigan, not to, to his hometown, but to the state." And he says he really has no idea what to say, right? And I think there's a sense in which, if you live in the Midwest, you have a complete vagueness about what makes your region unique. That I think is I think that he captured that very very successfully as to one reason why other people don't know how to write about the Midwest is because people who live there don't really know what to say about it. And of course, it's a vicious cycle. They, you know, they build on each other. But I, I found all of those sort of psychological um, portrayals of uh, of trying to self-define the Midwest, I, I found very compelling and very interesting.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I found it like, uh, you know, especially in, I think, the fourth part where he talks about you know the the midwest can sometimes claim that it's egalitarian because there's this notion that the midwest is normal and i think that is basically what like what i and my friends were claiming about me when i was in oxford was that i was somehow not in a bad way per se but i was sort of this like dependable average you know that i was someone you could depend on but i also wasn't going to necessarily like um I don't know. I wasn't going to necessarily inspire anyone, you know? And, um, he also kind of summarizing someone else. I'm not sure he totally agrees with, he talks about like, there's this idea of, um, how the middle West of America, sorry, how the middle West is America aged just right, that it's middle America and it's maturity, right? It has enough kind of going for it in the future um, to, you know, to be excited about the future, but it also has kind of enough history that you, it's, it's stable. And he has a great, you know, has a few jokes about like how <laughs> how Florida, <laughs> you know, Florida is like the deranged teenager or whatever it is and how Massachusetts is the, um, the tetchy particular, um, elder stage. And I was like, that's true. <laughs> that's, exa- that's exactly what I think of when I think of Massachusetts, um, but so I so I think and I and I think that a book like this weirdly it it does depend partly on how much you just get that stuff right you know what I mean like even if like you can't always say why it feels right he's really good at kind of putting words to a feeling that most people have or that at least you've encountered and he puts really good words to it that sort of let him keep going right because of course the whole book's about you know the misperception of the Midwest and also about how. <laughs> to be normal is to immediately, you know, to, to call something normal is to immediately mi- like misrender it. Um, and of course, I liked part four because I think it talks, or you know, row four, I liked it because it talks about, like you said earlier, the neurosis of someone calling you normal, and then the neurosis that the region has is reflected for him, and kind of the neurosis that he had as a basically teenager, right, that he. You know, he feels abnormal in a place that is supposed to be the heart of normality, and I, I really resonated with that because if the Midwest is sort of a catch-all for normality, it also becomes a catch-all for like suburban, average middle-class, particularly white, like kind of morality, right? Like I was raised in sort of this bland part of like maybe a cool part of the country, but like again, I, I, I'm more in the plains, even where I currently live, than I am in the mountains, right? Like. And there's a way in which I resonated with this this idea that like to be called normal is to be made neurotic, and also that you know you're surprised whenever you learn that like history happened right where you are, because the representations of the Midwest or of normality sort of erase the possibility of exciting bigness. Um, so that's I got a little off topic there, but I I do I do think that he kind of nails not only his perception of the of the Midwest, but he definitely expanded my perception of like. Or even put words to the idea of you know how the West came to be viewed this way because I, I think it, it's a really good argument that like the geography of the Midwest seems so expansive and has this sort of inviting supposedly emptiness that it which is like a constructed vision of the Midwest right it's like it's like I've driven through Kansas my whole life but I've driven through only half of Kansas I would drive through Kansas and I would go from Denver to you know like um, Salina or whatever and then we would go south you know, to oklahoma city right so i'm seeing like the plains part of kansas and the first time i drove further than that and i got to like fort riley kansas i was shocked that it was hilly
0: and beautiful
1: (laughs) and like not good for growing corn
0: (laughs) like you look up at topeka and it's it's hilly it's it's a different kind of city it's um right eastern kansas i used to do that drive all the time because i grew up in denver and went to college in kansas city missouri because, right. yeah, Western Kansas is what everyone thinks of when they think of Kansas, but Eastern Kansas actually isn't particularly it's flat at all. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, and so, but it's just funny because, like, so there's a way in which, like, there's enough flatness and there's enough emptiness that it kind of invites these projections. But as as soon as those projections are made into reality, right? Like, like, as you said, as soon as we've kicked the people out of what looked empty and as soon as we've built these towns that didn't organically grow around agriculture but were planted there by businesses, you've, you've sort of created this self-fulfilling prophecy that's really hard to break. And I I I found that very convincing because I I think this is a book that um, has like a lot of good punches of history, but of course it's not a history book. And I think he uses the history about right, because he definitely opened up my eyes to some things I didn't know about, but also made a convincing argument for how, and not just like in a boring academic way, but like how this stuff is literally constructed. You know, it's not just like a fancy term to talk about cultural determination, like these cities and so forth were put there by big money so that we could make big ag, not just because like big ag existed in some Edenic cornfield of iowa right like obviously yes you can grow corn in iowa but we've created the way in which we grow corn and that happened very early on
0: you know the central structure of the book of course is set in the plats and rows and he makes a big point about that the way things become sort of uh interchangeable and fungible right like you can just buy your little square mile section of ohio and and it's like every other square section of ohio which which isn't actually true but that was sort of how it was split up and you would just, oh, I guess I'll buy this massive, you know, two plat section of Ohio. Right. That's what I'm going to buy in advance from Boston in 1798 or whatever. Not that, I mean, a little later, but you know, early 19th century. And I'm going to build a town there because I want to. You know, <laughs> and right. people are going to yeah. move there for various reasons. And that that is that is part of why we have such a weird view of the Midwest is it isn't actually particularly organically grown. I thought that was one of the things I really came away with that I think I sort of knew, but not yeah. quite, not quite. I hadn't quite taken to heart that big chunks of this country were manufactured almost uh in a way that even further west wasn't as true um that i think is really interesting
1: well and you learned about like he goes into the the railroads of course and the robber barons and how they would like destroy towns or so forth so on and that was interesting because uh and it, there's even a shout out to like you know when he, when he talks about like the limits of the midwest he, he does mention eastern colorado like isn't that just kansas why does it not get to be part of the midwest which i think he's right to say because you know you land a dia and everyone's like where am I? What? Yeah, <laughs> I you're thought I was is going. where you are. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're you're not. Yeah, you're 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 in the part of Colorado that mostly exists, not in the part that's fun, which is Aspen. Sorry, but it's funny because I've you know I I was working at a library for a few years, and one of the things I ever saw was sort of this like Colorado history series. And it's interesting in Colorado's history, obviously the railroad, like everywhere else, determined, you know, the fact that Denver is the big hub, right? Like, everything has been made by the railroad. And that's not totally accurate, Denver's already a big city, but like, of course, what Cardo used to be was part of Mexico, right? Like, um, people who lived in Colorado one day had Santa Fe as their national capital, and then the next day they had Washington, D.C. as a national capital. And there was this huge, vibrant, like, you know, agricultural, yes, but like, you know, um, settler Hispanic culture down south and Cardo, which is still there, you know, Pueblo and so forth, it still exists in remnants, but it was the heart of the state at one point. And then you sort of have overnight with the railroad, all of that change. And so like, I, I, I guess I was primed for the idea of like things being planned, but I, I do think the extent to which they just chose places and made everything work around what they chose, I think I've underestimated that, which again, like you've talked about People talk about that as being like maybe like why it's so average, the Midwest, but like to, to be fruitful enough to accommodate the whims of, you know, corporate greed is pretty unique, right? Because if you try and do that in various parts of Colorado, it won't succeed, right? We can't grow stuff in the sand dunes, you know what I mean? Like you yeah. can't just plat that up. That's not going to – like like the Rocky Mountains, you can't just make into orchards wherever you want, Right. So yeah, so I think, I I, again, sorry for the Cardo tangents, but um, it's a book that really makes you think about place. I think it's a book that you can't help coming away from thinking about your own place and the ways in which you have and haven't considered its history or its history's effect on you. Okay, so obviously, (laughs) we both clearly love the book, but I was curious, I mean, like, it's a book about a lot of things, but I was wondering which things didn't work for you as well, or if there were sections that maybe didn't land the way you thought they would land or that you would have wanted more
0: from. I think... Probably the week, what I felt was like the weakest part of the book was sort of the first half of the fifth row, which is sort of about the the Midwest as a place that's falling apart, right? Um, and it, it's particularly about the economic choices that led to the industries leaving the midwest and the various agricultural changes right. that have goofed up the midwest now to some extent i don't know if it matters because there's uh there's no shortage of writing about that if you want to read about that you can do that it's not hard to find that so to some <laughs> right. extent i feel like maybe i get why it's he didn't put as much i don't want to say, just put as much effort. that's that's not what i mean but i mean why that maybe didn't wasn't as uh, exhaustive as maybe i would have liked because a it's a ludicrously complicated question that is partly about a lot of stuff that is only sort of about the Midwest is a lot of people making decisions in Washington, D.C., right? And, uh, you know, Wall Street. But also, again, there's just enough to read about it. But I think to some extent I would have liked to get a little bit more in that, particularly because, of course, the School of Economics, which is the – what he says is the foundation of a lot of this. And I think as my understanding as there's truth to that is the Chicago School of Economics, right? It is, which is the big Midwestern right. city. So I think I maybe would have liked a little more there um, as it was. It was just kind of, yeah, NAFTA was bad. And I'm like, well, I mean – Okay, but like, what did that mean? Like, what what did that actually feel like? What did that mean? I, I didn't get a good feel of that, the way I did for some of like the displacement of the Native Americans or the, uh, you know, the the building of like the Chicago futures market or some of that stuff. I yeah. I, I got a pretty good feeling of how that worked. Again, it's not a long book. I wasn't looking for eight hundred pages, <laughs> but I got a pretty good feeling of what he was trying to say about that. There were more primary source quotes there. You know, he quotes uh, Black Hawk who led the Black Hawk War, which was a big uh, a big major event in the re- relations between the Native Americans and the United uh, you know, States federal government uh, in the Midwest. And we don't really get a lot of that at this point. We talk a bit about Reagan and, like, the air traffic control strike and stuff like that. So I'm not saying it's, there's nothing there, but I feel like there could have been a little more there. But also, I'm just not as familiar with that as I probably should be. So maybe that's also just because I was like... I need to know more about this, and this book should. Yeah, do that. <laughs> no,
1: I, I, I had, the, I had the same reaction, and when I, and I couldn't decide actually. Also, so in addition to not knowing enough to fill in gaps that maybe he's not filling in, or to lucid on things that he's not lucid on, or whatever, I, I do think that also, like I, I, also wondered how much of it was my own personal interest, because I, I, and I, and I wonder how much of it was his too, to be honest, because. Like, like, so, it's, I like I always think about, you know, Syracuse, right? It's like I lived in Syracuse for three years, which is a weird place because when I would describe it to Coloradans, I would basically, you know, I would say I was moving to New York, and they would all be like, "Oh my gosh, you're moving to New York," <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, I'm moving to a place where it is cheaper to live than Denver, <laughs> you know, and like much smaller," which they didn't get because New York is just the city, right? But w- what I would always say is like it is sort of like a Rust Belt. Midwest town in New York and I think what's hard about talking about things that have been like you know ravaged by you know private equity or whatever right the very stuff he's talking about I, I I don't know how you make that original without either one talking about it a lot longer than you might want to in a book of this length or or two like I'm not sure how you do it period to be honest which maybe is reflected in my own rambling attempt to describe what I'm talking about <laughs>
0: and be clear it's it's you know two two it's not a two big three little chapters yeah. of it so it's <laughs> and it, it, it's not like it's bad by any means i just i left that feeling a little unsatisfied in a way i mostly didn't with the rest of the book which then he starts to talk about the doomsday preppers which is great so i you know well and I,
1: also you know i i agree I, I think when he gets to fortress america um and he describes you know <laughs> so he describes right the idea of like a fully achieved fortress america would just be the Donner Party a day or two before the cannibalism (laughs) starts. Like that's that's worth the price of entry alone, I think. You know what I mean? Like that's a really great way to summarize, you know, (laughs) some of the devastation that we've created and the ways in which we're trying to like we're trying to keep everyone out to have enough, you know, for ourselves or whatever. I also I will say since we're on row five, I don't know about you, but I, I felt particularly called out by his reaction to Trump's win and the 2016 election, because of course this is a book, a book a book about the Midwest in this moment. Of course, everything in this effing moment has to like somehow talk about Trump, right? Um, but of course, the Midwest, especially since he's talking about it politically, it, it, we have to get to Trump at some point. And so, but I, I did enjoy his his, an, his anecdote about the night of Trump's election when Trump won. His immediate instinct is to. <laughs> You know, withdrawn to the country with friends and buy guns and like have like a, a left wing armed commune, which is something that I make a joke about every week to to one of my friends, like probably every week. And he, he uses that to like you always say, he uses it for bigger picture stuff. He uses it to then talk about, you know, what it means to be in the presence of ideology or to be infected by it. Because of course he's someone who like hates the country, doesn't like guns, <laughs> would, would never do this, but it's the first thought he has. And he, he associates it with being this Midwestern. And I'm curious if that either resonated with you or what you thought about that in general.
0: No, I mean, I, I used to make jokes about that kind of thing too. Not as much after the just I don't know why it just didn't come up as much. But my ex-wife grew up in Western Colorado, and right. we used to joke when we were married that if uh, the zombies came, we were just going to run away to Olathe, Colorado, um, and you know grow corn oh, out heck there. Yeah, the
1: mountains are where yeah. to go. That's true.
0: Of course, that's not the mountains. That's over the mountains in the valley. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I I used to so I used to make jokes like that. Which again, you know, what am, what am I going to do on a farm? Like what? Right.
1: <laughs> no, I know. I'm going to die. I'll die there. You know.
0: I live in a a rural area now. I live in uh, Detroit Lakes, Minnesota, which is a population, I think, 9,000, technically. And so every summer, what are you doing this weekend? And I'm talking to people, and, you know, most of the people around here are doing something outside. They're hunting or fishing or doing something like that, and that's great. And I don't, you know, have any objection to those things at all. I think it's wonderful. I don't do them, you know. So what am I going to do if I go off to the farm? (laughs) I'm going to die is what I'm going to do. Like I'm going to, I'm going to live in a quasi urban setting or I'm going to die. There's no. (laughs) Well,
1: and I think, I mean, I think I wonder like him too. How much he grew up around like you just said, rural areas where you you know where you are now, and he had, obviously he grew up in a small town. And I don't grow up in a small town, but like I, I said, I said at the beginning to you before the podcast or during it, I've lost track of time. It's it's quarantine, you know. I don't know what is happening, but I, my entire family's from from Oklahoma, right? And um, none of them are really rural per se, but like my grandpa has a farm from his dad that basically a neighbor uses to feed his cattle and I have a cousin who grew up in the suburbs of Tulsa but who is now a um a farmer who's like a rancher basically and has his own place and he and his wife and their toddler like you know work their butts off seven days a week you know making chicken coops and stuff and I've been there it's really cool but so I think what what's what's hard about this particular fantasy possibly for someone like him, at least for someone like me, is that the, the, the ideology gets in there so early because you're close enough to it being a reality, right? Like there is a literal farm in Tulsa that I could go to if there's a food shortage and help make food for me and my family, right? Or like at least like you know, before there was my cousin, there were people I knew of. In for you example, for your example, right? Like people talk about retreating into the wilderness, but like yeah, your wife was from a small town in the middle, you know, middle of Colorado or whatever that like you could retreat to, right? So I feel like the reality of it is sort of what makes the delivery of ideology possible. You know that it's almost real enough that it's seductive. Um, but I also like that, yeah, I think that is a, I think it's also a good moment of what he describes, you know, the Midwest as being kind of on two frontiers, right? It's left the old country, but it has this kind of utopian emphasis um, without losing some of the old country values. So um, what, what, what else stood out to you in this book, man? Anything else that we're, I feel like we're, I feel like, there's so much in this book that I liked, but I feel like I'm missing a lot in this, in this recap.
0: Okay, this is the funny thing about it. When I was thinking about the book, you know, I was like, "Oh, there's again. There's the section about this or that. The section is three paragraphs, right? Because he just he cr- right. crams he just a lot does together, it so quick. Even, so I, I don't know. I, I'm hesitant to just start su- summarizing every single thing we see in the book because then just read the book. And at some point, we're probably going to get into like a copyright issue. right? <laughs> yeah. At some point, we've just replaced the book. Uh- <laughs> no,
1: we definitely shouldn't. We and, and it, you know, it's a small read. It can be a smaller podcast. We often go way too long on this thing. But I, I guess you know, um, I would come back real quick to. Um, in the fourth chapter is also where I think he does some of the, the lit stuff you were talking about, where he talks about different writers, including like, you know, the comedian David Letterman and um, Garrison Keeler and people who aren't just, I think, literary, you know, noteworthy in their own little niche. But um, I, I did like that section. And I think it was another section that showed his strengths. And I, I really, as someone who is a lit person, I, I did want to just – highlight on page 88 when he when he kind of goes through a list of people who have talked about what it means to live in the Midwest. And he kind of name checks these folks that I, I think was interesting about the Midwest as a middle age, like at the middle age of America, is a lot of these writers for me, like some of them, I found them when I was younger, but they've become more important to me in my 30s. And he kind of name checks Sherwood Anderson, who was huge for me in college, but only because of one short story, whereas the older I've gotten, he's become more important. He talks about Willa Cather, who's become important to me, or Tony Morrison, who of course you and I read in um, you know, Johnson's English class in high school, and I think I had like like she was I just had no react. Or, or we were supposed to read. I don't know if we actually anyone read. Song of Solomon. We were I didn't supposed read to read it.
0: I, think. I didn't finish yeah. it. I read about half of it. And then I did that again. Some, I've never actually finished Song of Solomon. I should do that at some point.
1: Yeah. Well, but mm-hmm. so, and I, yeah, well, you and you know, I, in the last four years, me earlier, you a little later, we both read Beloved and really liked yeah. it, right? So I think there's a way. So it was kind of funny that he just name checks a lot of people who. And maybe it was just because I wasn't hipster enough as a as a young literary person. I was, you know, caught up in the evangelical idea of everyone good is Victorian, <laughs> basically, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Um, but but so my own personal stuff aside, I I kind of thought even that was funny that there is a there is a real staid, dependable quality to every writer he lists, like except for maybe Toni Morrison. But even her, I think there's a there's a real consistency to their prose and their ideas that is not like I mean even though William Gass we mentions is kind of known as like a postmodernist there's not a lot of fireworks to them you know and I thought that like it was just funny how like even in describing it or trying to escape it you you really can never leave the idea of the Midwest as something that is for me at least I would I would what I, I would add always is like this kind of dependable. Maturity, which he talks about. And even when I wanted to like outthink that idea, it was it was just it's lodged in my brain. You know, the Midwest has a certain I again, dependability that I think calls up ideas of maturity and morality. And I think it will always have that because it's dependable for food stuff. <laughs> basically. Um, I did like that he name checked It Follows, which is a great film.
0: I like It Follows a lot. Yeah, that was that was I didn't even and he's right, though. I mean, that movie is set in Anywheresville, America, and, of course, it's actually set I forget where, but it's got a specific setting, but you don't really right. matter. It's in Anywheresville, but it's in the Midwest. like Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, one of the other just quick things I want to point out is he talks later on in the book, he's talking about uh, how he'd actually found a couple people writing about his hometown. Um, oh, yeah. That was who, really who had interesting. Used not just a town like his hometown, but his hometown as kind of a stand-in for the Midwest. Um, not like major literary figures, but a couple of PhD dissertations and stuff. And somebody had written an essay, and I don't actually know if he identifies who, but had written an essay. And Crispin says, "Of course, even this person who is trying to write about how this is an important place, and to some extent myself, are using it as a fund. We're just using it as a fund of attractive literary abjectness. Yep. You know, like a, a way we can pull pull ideas and stuff from it. We're not going to go live there. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, no, obviously yeah. it's a different kind of fund, and it's not it's damaging maybe, but it's still there's a sense in which we're we're still just extracting resources from." this weird little midwestern town. We're not living there. We're not, you know. And I think that's a very uh, kind of an interesting thought as an as like an artist if anything else is like what, you know, am I just not not stealing is it again, it doesn't, but uh, just drawing ideas from this place without actually giving well, back to being it a is part also, of I think it any, anymore. Yeah. yeah, being a part of it anymore. I think is an interesting obviously it's, it's it's complicated but I think it's a more interest an interesting idea and I thought the way he used it drew on his fund metaphor for this is good also attractive literary abjectness is a great phrase
1: it so. is well and i and it's funny so i I found so to think you know obviously okay so mostly i like mostly i'm 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 nothing I'm not really i'm just a say on dad right but like I'm a person who I don't writes... think it counts as
0: nothing. I think that's just
1: <laughs> – No, no. Uh, yeah, sorry. I was trying to, I was going to say like, as a writer what I am. And I realized as a writer I'm mostly a stay-at-home dad. <laughs> okay, I see what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was trying to get at. I wasn't trying to denigrate being at home, which is the best thing I've done with my life probably or whatever. But like, the point being is – sorry. When I was in Syracuse um, doing my NFA, doing my I, I realized that like I started to write about settings that like for me were everywhere everywheresville – and then I slowly realized that, like, they were Colorado, right? Like, every neighborhood um, had, within, like, half a mile or two miles, had, like, a canal trail. you know what I mean? Like, you could get there. Yeah. You had to maybe walk there sometimes. But, like, you could get to a canal trail for almost every neighborhood. And, like, just the settings started to take on this weird particularity that I didn't realize Colorado, specifically the suburbs of Colorado, of Denver, I didn't realize they had this particularity of, like, you know, you could move through the socioeconomic neighborhoods as if they were invisible until I was in Syracuse, where, like, it was such a different way of building neighborhoods, right? It was much more – it was much it was much less um, gridded, you know, and it was much more, like, old money and weird and broken down. And so, of course, it brought Denver into relief. And so it's been funny being back here because I think I was drawn to write more and more about Denver In the suburbs here, as it became more particular, the farther away I was from it. And now that I'm back here, I I find that that has maintained itself. But it actually, like, there is a weird way in which it 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 does feel like it has some kind of odd integrity to write about where you're living. You know what I mean? Like, because there just there are a lot of Brooklynites writing about the Ohio town they left, and that's not bad. I don't want to like make any kind of like weird moral judgment. But I guess what i'm saying is i i thought like at one point in my life i could have been that person and i i find it a lot more satisfying to come home and possibly be just a stay-at-home dad who writes on the side but to do it here in the place that i'm also mostly writing about and i and i think that he he is concerned with a certain integrity of thinking and living that i feel like all of this writing always causes me to to consider in my own life right like not just political action but certain you know live day-to-day behaviors and of course what's more day-to-day than where you've chosen to reside but yeah i think so i think besides that i think the one thing i was going to you might have more but like i actually don't think bill that you gave your other best <laughs> um, analogy for what this book reminded you of as a, as a type of writing.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was you don't have to if you don't want to. to. No, I but will. I will. You should. About it. So, so when I was thinking about what kind of book this is, because again, it's not an academic text. It's not a. You know, I, the, I realized one of the things it reminds me of is a sermon. And of course, I have to put a bunch of caveats on that because I think if you say that now, everyone's like, oh, he hated the book. He thought it was preachy. And of course, I thought I was going to be a preacher for a long time. Yeah. I have given five sermons in real churches. you know. Uh, right. So no, that's not how I feel about it. <laughs> I, uh, but like a good sermon, at least in the tradition I grew up in, which I think is at least similar to the, the Christian tradition he grew up in. Um, he said he was Baptist. I was also mostly Baptist, a little bit complex. Um, and I, I don't know, you know, there's a lot you of, to, in, in high
1: school, so. in high school, you and I used to talk about like the Baptist denominations and purely terms of like good and evil. Do you, do you remember this? It was like, well, that's yeah, the bad. I mean, in
0: fairness, the Southern Baptist convention is pretty easy to talk about. I mean, of, I was I just going to say,
1: like, I I think, I think we, we had it right from the beginning. I just remember like, we were, yeah, like I, that was, yeah, I mean, yeah.
0: Well, it's easy when you have a when you have a denominational split that occurs because of the Civil War it' supposed to be pretty easy to assign yeah uh, anyway hmm. I'm, I haven't paid attention to Baptist politics no, I haven't in either. ten years so I don't know I don't I don't go to church much at the moment so but anyway I grew up in kind of a, a Baptist tradition and you know my grandfather uh, is a retired Baptist preacher and so I'd seen him preaching off and on we didn't live in the same town but I'd seen him right. you know give the sermon almost every year at Christmas and often more than that I grew up again, for a long time thinking I was, I had a call to the ministry, and so I had actually interned at my church for a while, and had given some sermons, and had worked with the pastor there, and so I i don't have a, a negative association with the word sermon, but what I mean is there's a sense in which, like, a really good sermon, at least in this tradition, should be enjoyable, first of all, otherwise everyone's going to fall asleep, and this book is, I think, easy to read, and it's pleasant, um, but it has little jokes in it, it tells little stories, uh, personal stories, which, again, you also do in a sermon, you say, so I was or right. as you often see, you know, I was talking to my wife the other day and this happened, right? And you often make yourself look a little bit silly as you do it, right? Because it helps create a sense of humor as you're also basically lecturing a, an audience, right? And he does that, right? Again, when he talks, tells stories about his wife, they're often him being silly and her being like, what are you doing? You know, what I mean? right, <laughs> again, that's, right. that's, that's reductive. He's not telling the sort of like no, no, it's quietly right. condescending stories about his wife that people often do. But again, when he's saying, I'm going to run away into the wilderness and, you know, hole up with guns, she's the one who says, I don't want to do that for all these very good reasons. You know, again, it's well-researched, but it doesn't feel like an academic book. It's the citations are at the end. They're not peppered throughout, which, again, often a good sermon will quote other people. But again, you're not going to say, and as he said in this exact book written in 2005, and for the record, here's who that is. Like, you don't do that. You don't, you don't have right. time. You say... As C.S. Lewis said, X, Y, and Z, right? <laughs> right. And if they don't know who C.S. Lewis it's, is, they're it's in the always, wrong building. And if but they, it, yeah, <laughs> it's always C.S. Lewis. It literally is always C.S. Lewis, <laughs> uh, or Winston Churchill, maybe. But anyway, yeah. you know, <laughs> if you're quoting someone less known, you give you have like three words to tell them who that person is, and then you go on, right? Uh, and again, it's conversational and it's short because again, in a sermon, you have maybe 20 minutes, like at the most, right? Ideally. Um, and of course, that's <laughs> not true. Through 400 years ago, John Edwards would preach for like you know, four hours. But mostly, you know, 20 minutes now, I think, is even longer than you usually get. I think when I was growing up, 20 minutes was like the outside side. I think now 10 minutes is what people are looking for, probably. We can talk all day about whether that's good or bad. And so the book is 130 pages long, right? And But it doesn't feel like a memoir either. So it just reminded me a lot of the structures of the really good sermons I heard growing up and that I sort of tried to give. I don't, I don't think mine were very good, but that I tried to do when I was preaching uh, the four or five times I did. And, uh, I don't think that's accidental necessarily. Again, he grew up, he, you know, he is, he's very much still, uh, still, I always say still when I say stuff like that, that's a psychological quirk I'm going to have to <laughs> examine someday. Somebody still being a Christian. Anyway, we're going to move on from that. And we're going to say, <laughs> I am also still a Christian for the record, but anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry maybe I'll edit that out we'll see no no that was, was great no
1: please don't edit anything it was so good well and I, I think even, <laughs> even the way it opens out at the end which I think you have in your notes right like even the way that it opens out to kind of like a, a moral call that can't be concrete because it's, it's a call to change maybe how we think about living and not just how we are living but it is it's like hey, we, we have a moral crisis coming to this country that will depend a lot on geography and on definitions of place and on definitions of who belongs in that place and it's so he does kind of end on this, this note that is not prescriptive, but certainly is an invitation to kind of like reflect and, you know, look for change in your own life or otherwise, I think.
0: Yeah, I think and I think that's, again, most most of the good sermons didn't end with a very specific concrete call to action. You know, it wasn't usually go out and do this exact thing. It was go out and try to reevaluate how you deal with your friends and neighbors. Go try to, re- you know, think about how you're... You know, doing these, I'm not going to, but like that, that was more the way, like a virtuous realignment of your life, right? was right. more of how you were trying to do that kind of thing, partly because you had different kinds of people in your congregation usually, right? So like <laughs> yeah. you had to be, you couldn't give concrete advice to all hundred of them or whatever. <laughs> right. And that's how this book feels is it's not exactly here's the policy things we need to do. It's we need to think about the Midwest in this way so that we can try to make things better for people who live here and other places. So anyway, the book felt like a sermon. That's a good thing, or at least it's a value neutral thing at the worst. How's that?
1: I no, it's great. I mean, honestly, I sorry, I, I I made you do it because I I read it in the notes and I I love that idea and I I think it does capture the way in which this is a genre like unto itself a little bit, right? Because it's not a polemical book, it's not a memoir, it's not a history. It is a book that has a purpose that's also not totally an argument, although it makes arguments. And I I feel like you could you could put a few other you know categories out there but like sermon is not only surprising i think it's illuminating as to its as to its yeah as to its best qualities um especially if maybe you're familiar with like you know good sermons and not just the sermons everyone character you know caricatures on tv so is there anything else you wanted to hit anything big or small
0: i think that's probably you know there's little details i could pick on forever but i think that's probably probably probably, all of my big concepts how about you
1: no, I, I think I think that's that's probably it for me as well. Um, I didn't know if you wanted to say anything about you know our next project or anything
0: right. else. Right. So, <laughs> um, we've we've got our next big read uh, picked out. It's the Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Shabon. I think we settled on that. I yeah. gotta look these things we, up well, before yeah, we start we're gonna, recording a podcast.
1: It's, no, it's fine. It's fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Chabon. Uh Anyway, that. Uh, that's our next big read, which we're going to do in June or maybe early July. You know, the, the trouble with these things getting pushed out like a week every time is that at some point we're going to end up with doing podcasts for summer 2022 in winter of 2024. And so I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> but sometime in June or July is when we're going to do that one. That's the only thing we're saying for sure right now. We're going to do as usual, two more big reads this year, and we may do other small reads hither and yon, but for our own ability to move through life without having too many more stressful things hanging over our heads. We keep those secret. Don't tell you about them until we do them. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, that's – that's. Uh... That's it. If you like this podcast, then uh, we've got quite a few others you can listen to back in the uh, back in the archive. We've actually been doing this for a little over two years now. So, thanks again for listening, and, and thanks again, Joel, for doing this project with us, with me, with us. Like that's a separate entity, and you're also no man. <laughs> no, yeah, it's no. just you and me. There's no <laughs> well, separate it's entity. It's funny because
1: <laughs> he—that's actually one of my favorite parts in the book, which I will end on a little bit—is he talks about this incredible way in which um, to have a history to, to be made alive. It's to be made of many alive, wriggling, moldy embarrassments that preexisted you and over which you have no control. To live inside history is to be forced to tack back and forth between the I of personal experience and the you who emerges from and lives in history and place. And all you're saying, Bill, is that you and I have to tack back and forth between Bill and Joel individuals and friends and Bill and Joel podcasters. And I, I think Phil gives us some great language for that.
0: I'd say that's right. We're going to end there. So, uh, yeah, uh, we'll we'll do our next podcast in about um, June or July. Come and listen to that. And uh, as always, thanks, Joel. And we'll see you guys next time. Yeah, man. Thanks, guys. All right. Bye. Final thanks to Lily Jarvis and Keenan LeBlanc for letting us use their song Water Song for our podcast for these last two years. As always, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and really most other places that podcasts can be found. If you like the thing, go ahead and leave us a review on one of those sites and tell your friends. In the meantime, uh, you know, see you guys next time.